Well, we had our eyes wide open. Nobody else did. We saw them sleeping at a trade show. This little booth and these two guys that smoked every five minutes, Japanese guys. And they had this, this similar frames behind them. And we were like, uh, who are you? What are you? No, we're out of Japan. They couldn't sell one frame the whole show. Nobody was interested, but we were interested. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. In this episode, I have my friend, in this case, co-host, Paul Morris with me. He brought in Larry Light and he founded Oliver People's Google that. Take a look at how fun that, that ride was back in 1986 and he's been a titan in the eyewear space ever since now his son garrett has now made a mark of his own founding his own brand check that one out as well on instagram now i had the chance to interview both of them with paul morris and this was really really motivational it was really great we had some good questions and we get to see how they developed this brand over the years and now we get to see how Garrett is evolving it into something completely more awesome. Tune in. Here we go. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. And today I have my co-host, Paul Morris, and two special guests. Paul, welcome, buddy. Thanks a lot. Good to see you again. Well, you brought uh, you brought some amazing people on today, man. Uh, and everybody will know their product. So tell me about them. Well, I I uh, I grew up in a small town and a medium-sized town, Pittsburgh, and uh, and at that time, many many years ago, you you know, only the coolest of cool kids, you know, were able to get Oliver Peoples uh, glasses and sunglasses, and and Larry, uh, who I had the great fortune of knowing uh, because we were neighbors, is the founder of Oliver Peoples. Um, and uh, and and I, I also had the chance to to interview Larry before, and his story is one of uh, of one of really following a passion that he had and taking it all the way from uh, you know really starting at the lowest level all the way through uh, concept and then new store till it became really an international uh, phenom for sure. Uh, every you know the the biggest stars. Um, you know, were photographed in his eyeglasses and eyewear and, and how that transition took place. And then uh, Garrett came on the scene and I don't know Garrett as well. So I'm looking forward to, to really meeting him and learning about his story. And one of the things that I thought would be so interesting, uh, Tristan, for you and, and your, uh, and your guests is that, you know, when I started, I started a, in a business that, that my dad had started but then I really pivoted a different direction. So I know a lot of people are looking at generational businesses as well. So we have two great entrepreneurial stories to begin with. And then how does that sort of generational thing work and not work? And how did they, how did they move around to the point where really, truly Garrett's, uh, Garrett's eyeglasses are the coolest eyeglasses? <laughs> well, is that what you guys are wearing right now, Garrett, Larry? I would assume so. Uh, yeah, we're both wearing yeah. 
Paul, you better be wearing them, damn it. I, I, if you know, not, I, thought, I don't want to sure I thought about it before, but I, 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 <laughs> I did. Uh, I, I'm getting the prescriptions filled. You know, that's I think, funny. I think Tom Ford, although you know, fashion icon, plays a plays a close second to Garrett's uh, new stuff. So there you go. Uh, hello, well, Larry Garrett. Thank you for being on here. Uh, this this podcast is listened to by. A lot of solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, so the stories you're going to tell will inspire thousands and millions of people. We have a, a lot of people listening into this one, so thank you for that. And I want to start off with with Larry. Paul, I know you wanted to start off with Larry because it, it grows. This is a story, uh, a story of really two people, and I'm going to just pass it off to you, man. Great. So, uh, Larry, one of the things I thought was so cool is just, well, tell me, tell me how you, uh, tell me how you started in the business. Cause I, I, I know from talking with you about it before, um, you know, a lot of it, but I was just, how, how did you, what was the starting point, uh, the beginning of the beginning? Uh, thank you. Um, I would say in high school, I really was just a kid in high school. Um, I served and I played sports and didn't think a lot about what career path I would take. But I did start working at 13 years old because my father died young and I, our family didn't have any money. So I had to make my own money at a young age. So I did any kind of job, selling candy, worked 31 flavors. And I did learn one thing from that experience in the teenage years that when we went out to sell candy to big buildings and companies and women at their desks, I would sell out in a minute. I had the best, I, for some reason, I knew how to take the shortcut and I was out after I went into the first building while everybody else was going into 20 and I'd have to go restock. So I, I knew there was something, I didn't think much about it, but there was something in my ability to, to communicate with people and try to, you know, get them to buy my product without pushing it. What, what year was that? Yeah, that was, that was, um, yeah, around 64, 65, 66, Got it. Um, 67, just before graduating, and 68. And so I was working at Baskin Robbins. I wasn't pushing candy anymore, but I was pushing ice cream. Nice. <laughs> so you had, so I don't you know had what it has to do with it, but I am addicted to sugar. I hope that, I don't know if it came from there, but. <laughs> Garrett, is that you too? Do you like sugar? I don't know. I, mean, I don't know why it was candy. Not who doesn't like sugar? Yeah, I like sugar. <laughs> <laughs> me too, guys. Me too. Hey, so, so, okay. So you find yourself being a natural salesman. That, uh, that's yeah, great. I, I kind of saw that. What, and then what, ha what, what, what happens next? I, there was another little thing that happened. I found that I was also liked, um, I didn't know the word fashion, but I liked looking good. I liked my haircut done. I liked wearing cool pants and shirts. And when I saw other people doing it, I immediately recognized it, but that didn't, didn't register much. I just was coming to me. I, was, I didn't know what to think of that. Um, when I graduated, I was really lost. I was like, oh, what am I going to do? How am I going to, I can't keep working for two bucks an hour or whatever. So um, my cousin was an optometrist, optometrist. And for some reason, he told my mom or something that come meet him. I went to his office and um, he told me that I should go to a, downtown LA, LACC college, there was a Dr. Archer down there that had a program to learn how to become an optician. Takes about two years. I hate studying, I hate math, I hate all that stuff. I hated 
any kind of study in school. I didn't read a whole lot either, believe it or not. So um, my friend who I surfed with was really smart. He was the opposite of it. So I got him, what are you doing after graduation? I don't know yet, you know. Back then, not a lot of people went to colleges that I knew. I, I mean, it just, I don't know anybody that went to college, quite honestly. Or if I did, they weren't friends with me. So um, I asked him if he wanted to go to this program downtown LA. I kind of asked him because hopefully he can help me get through it. Because I knew it was, I wasn't going to like it. I wasn't going to, you know, it's making glasses by hand and all this optics stuff. So he did it with me. And um, um, he helped me. Of course, I helped graduate from it. But in, the, in this, after the first year, we both went and made our first trip to Hawaii, which was amazing. And um, I got a little hooked on wanting to be in Hawaii and the whole surf life and that whole world, you know. Um, and that was when I was about 19 or so, 20. That's actually when I it was around 1970 when I saw it was I was at Rainbow Bridge on Maui at the Jimi Hendrix movie. I was in that film front row sitting there watching that whole doc, the whole Rainbow Bridge that was with Jimmy Hendrix just a few months before he died actually then I went back to school and finished the semester and then Kenny and I my friend went to we got a job at, at a like a Walmart but it was a Fedco back then and um, I was selling really good and he didn't like sales really it wasn't his thing so he would get up tight when customers would be so he ended up getting bus both fired. They never hired anybody out of school. So they just took me and him out. <laughs> so, well, okay. good, right? so then I did get a job at a, a company that was um, into eyewear fashion back then in, you know, 71 or two. And, um, and they, they were dealing with a lot of celebrities and, you know, Elvis Presley customers, all him and all those kinds of things. And um, it, I learned, mm -hmm. you know, I was helping a lot of interesting people. And that's where I kind of learned that I really like helping people. I like making a difference on them. That was becoming something that was really something to look forward to when I went to work. I didn't know that it was important to be happy and love what you do at that age. I just loved what I did without trying. You know, it was just came really natural. I looked forward to it. People would come in and it, it started to become like an art. Uh, it became like uh, they were coming in and they wanted to leave with something that would affect them in a good positive way, either enhance their looks or their style. And that was a challenge. That was like being an artist, like a makeup artist, a, a designer. And I became really good at it. Okay, so so you 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 come out of you come out of high school not not the greatest student in the world. Uh, you meet your 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 uh, relative who's uh, who's an optometrist says, "Hey, go figure out how to be an optician." Right, which a is degree, a low, yeah, you know, two year course. Level. And then and then and then you learn how to do that, but you don't like school. This is a common theme for entrepreneurs, just so you know. It's very common, right? People that are really have a lot of vision and you know, maybe a little ADD like Tristan and me, and you know, you don't like to read. This is this is all very uh, you know, very important stuff because it's right down the middle for a lot of for a lot of entrepreneurs. But but then you get kind of a fashion bug, right? And you're and you're getting this sense of like, oh wow, it's really cool. And I got the like you're helping people, right? So when you say that, I know you're talking about making a difference for them in their looks and their 
And, and that was a part that, you know, share with me a little bit about that, how you're kind of drawn to the, to the art of, of this and going toward, towards something you really like. Right. And just before I worked for a fashionable store, I worked for a chain, a, a doctor who had mass customers, one after the other. You had to get rid of them in five minutes. So every time a person come in, it was insurance oh, wow. covered. So I would wait on 50 people a day. And the art was get them in and get them out. So I had this whole frame board behind me and I had to sit them down and talk to them and within five minutes find the best frame out of a thousand frames and convince them that it was the right frame. But I don't like pushing uh. and I don't like lying. So I learned the whole board behind me that I had access to visually as a memory and I could pick the frame. I knew the face shape. I could pick it in the first frame. I never ended up showing them more than two frames. If I did show them more than two frames, it would be because they wanted to and they always went back to the first one. And it was the best one too. So I realized I had that kind of ability to quickly analyze somebody's personality, lifestyle, face shape, <coughs> needs, prescription, everything. So then I worked for that fashionable store where I really became, people became much more concerned about a personality in a frame, if you know what I mean, the personality of the frames and how mm. it would match with their personality or their features. I was looking at it that way. I wasn't looking at it, oh, these are eyeglasses. What about this? And my head would wander. You know, it was more like a really deep involvement surgery, like, you know, and I, I really loved the art of it. Is that where you, you started finally seeing that there was more to this and say, hey, maybe I... Maybe I my philosophy doesn't match with this company. Maybe I should do something. Yeah, on my it was own. shortly after that where I be, I was a salesperson that I became the buyer of this really high fashion store because I had such a good eye. And then the designers that at that time I would tell my boss that they're not making the right stuff. They're we're having a hard time. They could do so much better. Why are they making these cups? I need this. So I started to go on the buying trip. So I spent years going all over the world in all the best factories in the world, meeting the best eyewear designers in that time in the 80, early 80s. Um, yeah, early 80s, late 70s. And I, I learned that they began to start asking me, what, what, what do you think? Some of the designers. And I started consulting with a lot of them and giving them ideas. And they didn't expect that. Other designers wouldn't want to hear anything from me because they think they know it all. A lot of those ended up failing over time. Um, I just happened that way. They should have listened. Years later, push fast forward, my brother who worked for LAI Works, and they were a famous brand and still are a great company, but 50 years now, they started 10 years before me. They were on Melrose, and they were Andy Warhol. They had, they had the most fashion forward boutique in the world. And they had every celebrity going in there and everybody. My brother started that company with the two, well, didn't start the, the girls that started the company. My brother was their head salesperson. So after many years of working there and I worked at another company, he was saying, we need to do a store. I was saying, we need to do a store and we need, there's something missing in the industry. And he started talking about what some of the people are asking for or coming in with from buying it from different parts of the world, mainly in Japan, before all the fashion started from Japan, before Yoji Yamamoto, just before that explosion with the Japanese designers, Comme des Garçons and all those, Issey Miyake. 
It was the boom of that era in the early 80s. And um, basically, um, we said that, I, my friend Kenny and I, we just said, um, let's do this. Let's, let's do a store. But we were gonna buy other brands, but our kind of goal was to design our own frames inspired by what he thinks and I think and we think is, is what we love, and which was vintage Americana. We love vintage Americana, James Dean. I mean, uh, just the whole Andy Warhol, you know? Paul Newman. Paul Newman, and just all those, that era of like people who were known for their glasses and they were, didn't make a big deal out of them, they were just there. Woody Allen, you know, that whole thing. Especially Warhol, though, I say was a big inspiration, really. James Dean, Warhol. But so, just at that same time, we got lucky. Um, I met in the industry somebody who had an estate of big, maybe a 600 square foot, 800 square foot in downtown New York um, of old glasses that were never worn, never circulated from, an, from a distributor back in the 50s, maybe, who had a, who sold to a lot of stores all over the United States and he had been deceased, and so this person was selling the estate, the estate, and I didn't know what to expect. He said, and this guy was going around selling one frame to one optometrist, one here. I, I caught on to it, my brother caught on and said, wow, what a good one. I went to New York, I flew there just for that. Brought a checkbook, went to this dirty old warehouse, way down in the basement, full of dust and everything. He had hundreds of boxes, nothing was on display, just boxes and some things. It was, Everything to do with eyewear, catalogs, machinery, lenses, clip-ons, original American Optical, Chiron, and um, uh, other companies that made beautiful handmade eyewear in America. Metal frames, gold-filled, 14-karat gold-filled. We used to make those frames. That's like what John Lennon wore, those metal little frames, you know, those thin round ones, and they're, they're gold-filled. And um, even Ray-Ban did back then, it was, you know, and so, I saw what I saw, and I didn't make a big deal out of it. I said, I just said, what do you want for everything in this room, you know? And he said something like $6,000. I said, well, was a lot of money back then. That would be like saying 25 now, I don't know. Um, more. Maybe more. And so, okay, so I wrote him a check. He shipped it to my, we weren't open yet, Oliver Peoples. We were not open yet. We were still opening our store, carrying other brands, well, we knew what we loved. We were, the other brands didn't give us what we loved, but we knew what our end goal was gonna be. We want to design our own collection, kind of like what LA Irish did, with our own vision, with our own taste, and our own ideas. And we would call it, we called it Oliver Peoples. It was gonna be called our names, but we decided we had a little good luck charm because when everything arrived at the house and we opened it all up, we were all there, my brother, Kenny and I, we were like, we just hit a gold mine here. Like, look at this. We were spent the whole day on the floor with all this stuff. We had chills, like, it was crazy. And it was from a family, and the name was Oliver Peoples. And we didn't know the person had been deceased. Oh, we said, we, we oh, got to just funny. name it. We got to name it after that for good luck. And because it's a it's very eyewear name, it felt like. It was odd. So, so cool. It was so I odd, the it. name, but it sounds very British to us, which we think... We were like British eyewear because British eyewear back then was so intellectual. Sophisticated, right? Sophisticated. And that's yeah. all we cared about because everything out in the market was all colorful, bright, 
plastic frames, everything. And we wanted to throw back to early American machine age eyewear, you know, like, so we used a lot of those frames. We were inspired by them, but we sort of rebuilt them to, to have the same feeling, sometimes the same filigree and nose pads, but <clears throat> we modified them. And then we decided, let's make the clip-on go on these. And so we started designing all these frames. Now to say, I'm not a, a, a I can hand draw and do all that, but we met a factory in Japan and that was also by, well, we had our eyes wide open. Nobody else did. We saw them sleeping at a trade show. There's <laughs> little booths and these two guys that smoked every five minutes, Japanese guys. And they had this, this similar frames behind them. And we were like, uh, who are you? What are you? No, we're out of Japan. They couldn't sell one frame the whole show. Nobody was interested, but we were interested. They, they had a factory and they made these few products and they wanted people to buy like minimum 5,000. Now we were at a show where you buy two frames for your store. So I used my salesmanship and kind of like exaggerated a lot. I said, we're opening a store in Hollywood. We're going to be doing a lot of movies. I didn't know we were going to be, but we're going to be doing a lot of movies and lots of stuff. I'd like to just buy a hundred of them and test them. I've got a movie coming up. We got a producer that wants them for a movie. They were so excited and thrilled with that. So they did sell me a hundred. Five days later, I call them back. I need 500. Week later, I need a thousand. These were similar frames to what our idea was. And then I asked them, could you do the designs we want? Because these were in the same genre, the ones we bought from them, but not our name, Oliver Peoples, if you know what I mean. Garrett, I'm going to, I'm going to, and um, Larry, I want to ask you something, Paul, because this is important to people listening in because a lot of them are entrepreneurs. They're tar- starting their own business or they're in business. You did something there. And, and I think Garrett might touch on this too, because now you, you've developed into something different. You touched on something where you went to Japan yep. to find a product that you all, that you liked, right? Yeah. And, and then you said, Hey, let's sell this one. Then you shifted to designing your own. We wanted to see and if sometimes, it works. Yeah. Sometimes people want to jump a step. And and how important was that for you to test something first and then design it after? We were so in love that they had part of our vision, just a little part of our vision, that we wanted to have it right when our, we opened so we could really make a statement. So Got that's it. why I wanted that, because I had nothing like it, and I couldn't, and it would be so good to start, I wanted to start a relationship with them. That's another reason why. In fact, I didn't really care that it would sell that fast because we knew what we could sell, but it it did. Since we knew it did, it did all that. So then we met with them and they were excited to know that we were starting a company called Oliver Peoples and we have our own ideas and designs. We turned them on to all this archive vintage Americana stuff. They blew their mind. They grew our Oliver Peoples business in Japan and they were the hottest thing in all of Asia, which is Oliver Peoples, they were the agents for us and they manufactured for us. Ah, so they were thrilled. We had the greatest years, 10, 12 years of going there in the beginning. And it was just so innovative. And everywhere in the world, all of our competitors, everyone had an eye on us, but everybody kept saying, oh, it'll die. It'll, and we, yeah, it'll die. Who cares? Just to give you an, uh, an idea, and, and I, then I, I, I want to shift and see like how, you know, where was Garrett? You know, Garrett, where did you, you know, you see your dad doing all this stuff or, you know, where did your interest come from? So he was just born. He was just five years old about yeah, so in our I was, peak. I was born in 84. So um, he didn't start all over people's till 87. 87, yeah. And I think, wow. you know, 
it wasn't until, I mean, I was the same as him, whereas I was just like a little athlete and, you know, wanted to be focused on school. And he was building the brand, you know, in the business from 87 to 95, right when my parents got divorced. So it's funny, I don't even really recall... He was probably gone a lot. He was probably yeah. at these, because I go to these trade shows now, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, I know how grueling that calendar and schedule is. Um, and that was a totally different time, right? You didn't know email or anything. So it was probably twice the travel schedule because you need to, like, now I can approve drawings from, you know, 5,000 miles away. I don't need to fly out for every production and sampling process and thing like that. So, he was kind of gone a lot probably from 87 to 95 and I was just kind of growing up being a kid and then I got really into tennis, not to go into my story so much. And I almost wonder at that point, I don't even know how Oliver Peoples made it because he was so obsessed with my tennis career because I was division. That was after we got to a that little was, bit they over They were bigger, yeah. yeah, 10 years old at that point. But, but uh, I did, since there was no email and since yeah. there was no social media and there was none of that, I had to travel all over the world to sell this product myself, even out of a suitcase and a little it. cafeteria. And I had to go visit. I had an, I learned from somebody else previous to me that had great PR and all the fashion magazines. And I loved that. I loved that whole scene like that. And I kind of learned what the, how you kind of do that. And so I, he was, he blessed me on that. I, I went with my people and we, I went to hired a translator, went to all the major cities, Italy, Germany, Japan, London, you know, everywhere, you know, France, all over there to every magazine with my little kids and my translator girl and them. And they all sweeped up everything <laughs> I had. And three weeks later, it was in every fashion magazine from Paris Vogue to Elle magazine, all over Time magazine, New York magazine, Wall Street Journal, every, every magazine, Spain, everywhere. The portfolio is like this thick of all these celebrities wearing glasses, and that's when it blew up. That's probably 1991, 92. Yeah. The Time magazine was, was the, huge with Pete Rose on the cover. What was the, what was the, what was the, if you could pinpoint it to one thing, you know, the buildup to it blowing up, what was that? Was it a collective amount of things, or was it just like the one thing you could say? The first show that I ever presented it was in Italy, and I didn't have a booth or anything, and um, we had product we believed. The first blow up was in our own store. And it's like you're hearing the album for the first time and you love it. And you think if your taste is well enough, you you think other people are going to love it, too, because your customers were already loving it. So we were pretty confident after the first few weeks of selling our own brand there. This is going to be great. I had a lot of confidence. So I left. I went on the road to every fashion magazine, didn't even have the sales in town. And they I figured if it gets in every magazine, the rest is history. And it and that, pretty much true there and so that's what happened and then every stores kept calling asking they were sending checks to us they were standing in line for us we had the trade show we almost wow. had to close down it was ridiculous we had at the show all my competitors i used to buy from were going what is larry doing what is happening we had a tiny little booth with a long line of people begging to get in and they were all talking about it in 87 we had a trade show and that's how it was for many trade shows. We knew then we were on, so we just played the game. We just played harder. To, sales game was to play, make people want your product. We played the hard game, we had, in, but we didn't do it on purpose. We couldn't fulfill all those orders, so we had to shut it down, say we're not taking any new accounts. So it was like even harder to get, but it was really true, but it worked for us. 
the hardest brand to buy. You can't get in that. You can't get there. Selling only one store per city. So we were lucky enough to be able to do exactly what a dream would be to be, to be in the best store in each city in the world and sell out all the time. So much so that store sold so much, they wouldn't even allow us to open another store because we couldn't produce it fast enough. Oh. Anyway. Let me, uh, it's, it's a phenomenal story. I, I love the, uh, I love the, uh, we don't have time to get into all of them because I want to, I want to get There's a million things, yeah. To Garrett, but I, I, one of the things I loved was the, you know, Larry took a fashion magazine. Kate Moss at that time is the hottest uh, supermodel on the planet. And, uh, and Larry yeah. visualizing what would look good on her. And I, and I remember him going yeah. all the way back to the days where he had all those, all those uh, different frames and he was going one, two, three, here you go. And then he drew, you drew the frames right on, on her Kate face Moss. in the magazine. Yeah. And then you did what with that magazine? You sent it? No, I mean, I drew frames on her face so I could get a feel of how it would look in the magazine to pretend that like I turned the page and go, whoa, that it wasn't like anybody else's. It was like, yeah. So that's kind of like how I wanted to design for. It's the visual, sort of visualizing that, that great success. And that was just another thing. See it, yeah, just to see it in just the page. Visualizing the great success uh, before it happened. Yeah, but not so individual that you are so different. Like I would put it in the magazine so it could blend with everything else. So you turn the page. It was not, they wouldn't use it. It was shocking. So it looked good with the clothing, colors, style, you know, if it was deco or, you know, whatever it was. And back then, vintage, luckily, was a big thing in 86. And it's watches, the Royalton Hotel, all that stuff. So I had that Still on my is. side, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. We didn't yeah, plan yeah. that, Still but is. that just happened. In your and you're you're visioning ahead of where the market is, which is cool. So Garrett, you're you're uh, you know you see your dad's massive success, and you know, and we're we're out in L.A., so we you know I I know I know uh, I know big families that have you know that have a famous rocker dad or famous businessman dad, and some of the kids look at that and they run from what their dad's doing. They don't want to be in that same industry or do that same thing. And then others sort of gravitate to it. So what were you thinking? What caused you to go like, okay, you know, I want to do my own thing, but this is interesting. What did that, what's that look like? Yeah, sure. So um, I certainly was like that at first, all through high school and even, you know, all the people's being a, like a luxury um, kind of brand. I really even didn't want to wear it because I almost felt like it was too rich for a 17 year old kid to be wearing that. Like I would go <laughs> to surf camp. I remember they were giving out like Von zipper, black flies glasses. And I was like plastic, like little plastic for I felt more comfortable that that's what the kids were. The, the t little teenagers were wearing. I mean, me wearing all the people just felt, I don't know. And I wasn't the type of guy that was going to like turn them on to it either. Cause they wouldn't be able to afford it anyways. So yeah, if, you know, and then tennis was a huge part of my life. I was like a division one full scholarship to a school here in California. So, you know, I went to college and then I quit like a year in, two years in. It was just so grueling. I knew I wasn't, the goal was always to be like US Open Wimbledon. And when at some point you realize like, that's just another level. Like I'm not going to get there and this is the best it's ever going to get. So I wanted to grow up because most of my high school days were like tennis. So you know, I got into like college things that you get into, you know, you know, and um, not much, not much studying either. I don't think I would have got into that college if it wasn't for the scholarship because my grades weren't very good either. I didn't care for math or reading either. Um, although I was a journalist. Um, well, I had a journalism degree. 
I did like to write. Um, and storytelling was something I loved. So, uh, I mean, I worked for the school newspaper there. was like a beat writer for music and sports. Um, graduated, went to work at MTV, which was just like an internship. So, you know, more, more entertainment and music stuff. Um, and my dad kind of always told me that I, he's like, look, you're going to want to come work, like, you're going to want to work for the company at some point. You know, he had just sold the company at that point to Oakley. It was like 2005 or six. And, um, you know, and everybody was right. Like the MTV job was kind of dead end and didn't pay well. And I wanted to like eventually make my own money in my own career for myself. So I went to work at Oliver Peoples and that was really like my first exposure at like 23 or 24 um, to the company other than just like seeing this. It was the same faces because he built such an incredible company and culture that they really retained so much of the talent from the sales directors to the shipping people to the, you know, uh, every role was like the same people from when I was five years old that I then went to go work for in the I worked in the merchandising like for for Nordstrom and Neiman's and stuff like that and um, I think I recognized pretty quickly that I wasn't going that I really I didn't know what an entrepreneur was either but I knew that I needed to work for myself I wanted to create my own thing I didn't want to live in my dad's shadow. And I felt that way because I felt people did treat me a little differently. They probably were unsure, like, you know, what's his role? Do I have to be nice to him? He's the owner's son. I didn't like that. But, um, you know, I was a good communicator like him and a good salesperson. And I, I was able to navigate it. And I think what I learned was I just loved, I knew that I had to create or I knew that I had to work to live. And I wanted to work in an environment that I could create its own culture. And I wanted people to revere me the same way they did my father, like, I wanted to, you know, like Mondays aren't like Mondays at Oliver People's, you know what I mean? They're like fun to come into work. And I wanted to create that for a new generation. And um, it just seemed naive for it not to be eyewear. Like, I, I sure, I like shoes, but I didn't have the factory relationships, you know, or I didn't have the built-in history and story. So both an easy and smart route to take, you know, I wouldn't say that, I felt at the time as like inherently passionate about eyewear. I didn't have the decorated 20 year career pre Oliver Peoples of being obsessed with eyewear and the need, you know what I mean? Like I got, I started Garrett Light at 26 and it was a bit more um, strategic to both myself and the career. But um, working at Oliver Peoples, I helped them open a Malibu store and I do recall helping that first person try on um, or not even try on. Like I had that same ability where I could see their face and I knew the whole catalog behind me and I could just pick that frame and they would just leave like on cloud, like on cloud nine, you know, and that that's a really good feeling. And when you can do that over and over again and people start coming back to you and asking for you every time they need new glasses or referring a friend, um, it's a better high, I think, than like yeah, other articles of clothing or things. Maybe like selling a home, you'd feel as good because you're like, it's like really changing someone's life, you know? And, um, I, you know, more so than a shirt, it just does. It goes on your face, it creates a character, and people, um, you know, recognize that. So it, it, when I did start the company and opened a store in Venice at, on Abbott Kinney in 2009, we didn't have Garrett Light. It wasn't even called Garrett Light, actually. It was all vintage inspired because there was like a vintage revival 
We sold vintage Oliver Peoples, and we sold some modern brands. My, this girl that I knew, she made shoes. My cousin made apparel. You know, I, I was really into like music, as I had mentioned. They sold like old disco records and, re- and reggae. That was like the sounds that I liked. I grew up in like the 90s hip hop culture. So totally different era. Um, and social media had just started. So, um, you know, it's just, I work in the same medium as my father, but like a totally different era of distributing your message and your brand and, and through digital, in a digital environment. So, um, but I did take some of the same strategies where, you know, I got, a, I designed the first collection. I grabbed a briefcase, threw all the samples in and went to Europe and opened a hundred accounts. People didn't even speak my language. And same thing. I, tri- I, I targeted only the best stores in each city. Went to New York, met with Vogue. Oh, Garrett, can you talk about that a little bit more? Because that takes, it takes a few things. One relationships, right? That maybe your father had or that you had built over the phone and then the guts to be able to go and do it. So can you talk about that? Cause I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. It's funny. Um, people ask that question a lot and, I, and I'll, I'll start with the, the advantage of, especially when you're talking to someone who doesn't speak your language, you know, <laughs> saying that your father's all over people's Larry light, that will buy you a couple extra minutes, right? Like some people can't even get past the first 30 seconds where the buyer's just like, I'm done. So there was a huge advantage, of course. However, he didn't have those sales relationships because now it's 2010. It's different people. Even if it's the same store, he had hired sales directors by that point. He didn't know. He maybe knew the owner of a few, but not the team that was buying at this point, right? So, um, you know, it was really the email that I would send out included who I was and what my story was that then could get me the meeting. But then once I came out there, and some people didn't reply. I also had, which I think, I don't know if people showcase it as much, but like Oliver Peoples had their best, they had their whole retail chain on their website with their aid, they would like rank their doors. So like I knew, you know, I could just pull it from the site. I, people don't do this as much <laughs> nice. anymore, you know, like kind of tear out their accounts, but I could look at that. I could cross check it with other brands that I liked and see who they were selling to. So I was able to target like the top hundred doors like that. That's how I knew who they were. Mm. Then I would kind of bought me some time with that being his son. But then once I got there and some people didn't even reply, I still went and knocked on the door and just like, I'm here. And they were like, Oh my God, like you, you came I hoping kind of was hoping you didn't come. But that's funny. Yeah. And uh, I had a hundred percent sell through rate in Europe. America was a little more difficult. Europe, literally every account that I visited on that first two trips in 2010 and 11, it was like 100% sell-through. They bought the product and then they reordered and like, it was like gangbusters. I mean, they just like, I was doing everything, you know, and I had to start. Why do you think that is? Uh, keep, I want to make oh, one point there. They didn't buy the product. They wouldn't have bought the product unless it was good. Yep. So he couldn't have walked in with anything. Right. It had to be at a level because I know another person my age who had a son who did the same thing sure, and failed immediately. So I'm not going to say, but it is not about who you are, what it is. At the end of the day, the product has got to be great. It's got to be, it has to fit all those categories to warrant somebody to reorder and the, then the consumer to buy it yeah. without even knowing 
Larry Light, they don't have to know. It's got to sell itself on its own. It's got to be that good. So you take the risk by going to those stores. You, he didn't know if he didn't know if it was going to sell or not. He could have came back empty-handed. Yeah, it has to be to the time too, because you know, as a designer, when you're the active designer, that you know, fashions are shifting year to year. So Garrett has to take his line, and his line has to speak to. To to the same maybe the same city, but it's got to be a totally different thing. So so I I I I get that for sure. Another thing too is that you know all of our people's because you chose somebody's uh, somebody else else's name and not yours to say hey this is Garrett Light eyewear. Consumer doesn't know that, and I and I know per, firsthand. You know I I see friends and people talk about like oh Garrett you know Garrett Light's this phenomenal thing. They may not even know the 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 all of our people's connection. So it is interesting to sort of to that you made a strategic decision like, hey, I've got some access. Oh, I love fashion. Sure, I could do shoes, but you know, I do have access to uh, to some some industry information. But then you really got to run out on your own. And I, I would think, frankly, that some of us would look at the the level of success that all of our peoples hit and be like, you know, maybe I should go into shoes. You know? Yeah. Exactly. I want to. Uh, I do want to address because I feel like you asked that question two times, both to him, what it was, and I, I feel I, I do actually have the answer. And it's a little bit of everything, but two. Here's everything we had in common: Sunset Plaza in 1987 and Abbot Kinney in 2009 were two of the coolest places in the whole planet. You could literally find the most interesting amount of people from Hollywood to skate to art to fashion to music to whatever it was. So you have both selecting the right people to talk to first, then the product was perfect. My, he, that Japanese guy that was sleeping at the show that they then took that and made it their own, that was exactly what was needed for the market at that time. And I think it's more comes inherently to both of us to, to feel that, right? And a little bit of luck, like it's just the right time, right place for sure. And then continuing to deliver to that customer mm-hmm. what they want and what they don't even know that they want exactly. that's next. Exactly. So those two things. And then you talk about the wholesale business, selecting the best stores that are the coolest street in Paris, the coolest street in Berlin, the coolest street. They have similar clientele. Correct. You're now building this whole world of distribution. But what we did was then built the brand. So he goes to, at his time, he goes to New York and gets the right models on the right magazines. My time is a little bit more social media, but I'm taking this story of my community, being mine being Venice Beach, and selling that to the world through a blog, you know, through a magazine that we made at the time, through PR. So like, it's really all of those things. It's, it's the product, it's the place, and then it's like, what story and community are and you I was selling Hollywood, that people want yeah. to be part of? Yeah, people, I was Hollywood more, glamorous Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. He's became youthful, more youthful, grunge, gritty. And so it's true. But it's similar. When he opened Abbott Kenny, that was the place that I would say we Sunset Plaza was to other people, my crowd, back in 1987. So big 20-year difference, 25-year difference, really. Yeah, people wanted to be part of that lifestyle, and if they could do it by a pair of glasses, great. You know what I mean? Garrett, there was, on what you're saying, there was an article in Business Insider that I was reading earlier this week before, just to do some research on on both of you. You put in here, they quoted you, 
I launched my first collection off the influence of my customers. And my customers were just cool intellectual locals with really rad interests and jobs, but they flew completely under the radar. And I love that, man. Is it, Tell me more about that culture in the company you currently run. Yeah, I mean, that actually stems from my father initially being one of the first brands to not put a logo on their glasses. So like in the 80s, it was all that colorful stuff that he was talking about that he didn't want to make. It was like super corporate fashion houses. People were wearing more branded big companies with huge logos, Ray-Ban or otherwise. They really built that DNA and so well to the fact that unfortunately it doesn't even feel that proprietary to me. Almost there's so many brands now, which at the time that he did it, they were first and nobody did it. Now you can find a dozen or more brands that do look like Garrett Light or Oliver Peoples who, you know, don't put a logo on it. But like what I would say is they don't really know how to resonate with the people that really like that. Like I worked in my store physically with these fly under the radar influencers. And I don't mean social media, I mean like directors, producers, musicians, like they're not, names not always on the front of the album, you know, they're backside of it, but they are very influential in the way that they dress and talk and food that they eat. Um, and they don't care if people notice, notice them. them. Yeah. It's just not, it doesn't matter. And as far as I can see, they still influence the world today. Although maybe the Gen Z doesn't quite recognize that as much now because it's so in our face as much, but um, I don't know. That's, that's the audience that I, I dig and, and um, it, but it's heavily, he invented it well, in, in terms of I We definitely knew our audience and we definitely understood how they lived, where they were in each part of the world, exactly where that sort of same innovator was. And I think focus, that's why it's so, it seems so simple and it can be, but it was so targeted each little step that it all fit into the same house, you know, the same, not the same personality, but just the same kind of um, creative, intellectual, trend-setting type people, people that didn't want to be the same as anybody else, that didn't give a hell what was on their glasses and who cared. I definitely think that, you know, one of the unifying, one of the unifying things I'm learning today, and it's cool to, to talk to you both at the same time, really a, a unique experience, yeah. but it's really knowing your audience. So whatever your, whatever your product would be, it would be really immersing yourself in your audience. So, so, you know, Larry back to being in the, you know, getting sort of your 10,000 hours by being immersed, you know, in the, in the, in almost speed dating version of putting glasses on people's faces to, you know, Garrett really immersed in the, in the world and the genre, the people that he enjoys and like, okay, so how am I going to, how am I going to enhance their lives? What, what, what's, what's that going to be? And that's sort of a, that, you know, I want to make sure that we're getting some of these really unifying concepts that people can apply to, to, uh, to different industries and different, different aspects, the, the entrepreneurs. I would say one thing that what Garrett said, he said, like, there's a lot of brands like him. Now there's a lot of brands like all the people even now the, the, the hard part is really is how to separate you know, somebody could make the same brand down the street. What, so what ingredients do you need today? You would want to ask, like, what does it take today if it's not just the frame? Because with me, it was that magazine, the frame, you know, and the stores in the right location. Today, you can have all of 
maybe not the magazine, but you, you can have the store and stuff. It doesn't mean, you know, he, he had to appeal and it's different. That's why his shops, his concept, he has a, a magazine that comes out every quarter. I mean, he could tell you, he has, I buy his sweats. His oh yeah, I mean, I guess... you have no idea of, of all the culture that's in the shop. It's always what I dreamed of, but we were always just eyewear. When people said, "Why don't you go into clothing?" When you should, I'd love to, but I think we get killed. That was my whole idea. You know, it's, it's... he started it in that kind of kind of taste, so it's very different. It's funny, like I'll just elaborate on that. But next to be a coffee. Part shop. of the reason I started this company is because there was somebody that worked quite high up, as high as you can get, at all of the people who I felt didn't recognize that I kind of knew what was going on with the next generation. And I was working there. I would have loved to take the things that I do at this company and just been the next creative director of all of the people's right. at the time, right? Like, I think I would have loved it. I don't know. Part of me is like, I don't know how I was being treated there, but whether I would have loved it or not necessarily isn't the point. All of the people's built an incredible lifestyle brand and, and they still do very well, but they could have evolved more. And today, Garrett Light, what it looks like is this incredible lifestyle that we have. We now release limited edition, you know, chairs with Modernica that are like Reims inspired and we sell a hundred and they're gone in like a couple days. We did a collaboration with like a parks project, which does like a charitable donations for parks in California. And it was all biodegradable and sustainable and like, scholarships. you know, um, you know, so we're now going into other categories and launching other things. And they're not, we don't intend to be like a, sweat sweatsuit brand but like it really just grows our audience and it's this opportunity to kind of paint a whole picture of what a garrett light consumer is into and looks like whether it's through our magazine with the people that we feature which we release twice a year um we're eventually going to do a podcast um but like just kind of like it's a it's just so different now you know what i mean and and i think Older brands, some are doing a great job of evolving in this culture and this era, and some aren't. But um, yeah, it's crazy how more we are than just a piece of glasses now in 2020. What advice do you have for somebody who's in an industry, they've been in an industry for a while, that industry is evolving. And hey, I did, you know, I did great a little while ago, you know, some competitors are coming in and, um, you know, do I, what, what's, What's your advice to uh, to sort of a legacy, legacy I mean, brand? You got to find somebody who makes you a little uncomfortable and is just newer and younger and like has some ideas that scare you, you know? And then, of course, hopefully you're good enough to recognize that, um, you know, what, what the DNA of your brand truly is because that person can't help you unless somebody at the company is able to say, look, this is what we stand for. Here's what I've built over the last couple decades. Here's why I think the customers appreciate us, but we're losing ground to these competitors because I don't know why. And then that person can probably help you yeah. find your new audience or more audience or re-engage your old audience. But if you built something that doesn't have any DNA or something, it's going to be a lot harder. There has to be some sort of foundational substance there that really holds the house together. And then you got to be lucky enough to find a person who wants to help you. But yeah, it's just new blood, you know, which this I'll need it at some point. I've got two kids now and, you know, in 15 years, I'm going to be, you know, probably going to their tennis matches and I might lose some. I already miss out on dinners and things that I just can't stay as culturally relevant as some of these 21 year olds out there. I'm almost 40, you know, like I, 
you know, so you just have to have that self-awareness to know that that's just like the natural, it's just going to happen as you get older, but you got to bring in people that, that challenge you, make you feel a little uncomfortable and, you know, and are also incredible people that like can really do the job. What's, what's funny is, as I'm, I think it is, but it's not on the same level, but because I'm from LA and this whole thing, it kind of reminds me of Maxfield and James Pierce. He basically started with a t-shirt. Now he's doing home bedding, kitchens, soon will be hotels, you know, you know, the whole thing. How, how did that evolve? Did he have that vision when he started? Probably not. It was just, his dad probably thought, t-shirts, you know? Yeah, so Tommy yeah, Purse and James Purse. It's Pierce, crazy. Yeah. Tommy Purse and James Purse. And the guy's so cool. successful. It's Much bigger all than his I dad wear. <laughs> Much bigger than his dad ever will be. And um, it, it's just a similar thing. He's, he saw books in his store many years ago. Then it was like, now it's home, it's furniture. It, it's just on so many levels. And just the other day, I kind of forgot about the Van Clef story in Power Pills, you know, 1906, to, to get married, our last name, our pills. They get married and they're in love with this symbol and then they, they want to open up this jewelry store because they came from a family of jewelry, both of them, and they start with one little thing and then it evolves into that over a hundred year of company and they still keep the same sort of story, DNA, the whole thing. And that's so important. You can't just be a commodity. You know, I mean, if you're just a commodity, then you got to go to an, an agency and make up a story later yeah. in the game. You know what I mean? And figure out what it is like people want to hear. But... Van Clough or Oliver Peoples or gotta be honest. Garrett gotta Light. Be. If you can build a story from the beginning that resonates with people and you hang on to that, you'll have something that theoretically could go for hundreds of years. But that's why doctors know what they do. They go into that, they'll be a doctor, they'll be a lawyer. But this, but this kind of stuff is, you know. More nuanced. You know, it's, it, 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 it's hard and it's not. It depends if you have a lot of these passions, really. And, and, and you can recognize them if they work with what you might believe in. But I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know what I would love at all. I didn't, not till I was 21 or two or three, you know, a little bit what I liked him, but then didn't know I'd have a business. I didn't know any of that, just like what Garrett said. So it's really interesting. So it's, it's kind of hard to say exactly, but that, a lot of the ingredients. Uh, yeah, it's hard to define the secret sauce for sure. Uh, but it, but it's also, that's why, that's why, that's why we're talking to you. You know, you guys yeah. have a secret sauce. We want to know, uh, how do we apply that in our industry? And, uh, and I think you've given us some, you know, I think you've given us some, some, some great ideas, definitely, you know, following your passion and being, uh, but also really listening to your audience. I exactly. think is one of, that's, that's, that's one of my big takeaways. Uh, you know, sometimes, Sometimes the inventor falls in love with their product so much they are losing sight of that's right. You know what uh, of who they're speaking to. On, on that question, guys, uh, last last question here. But by, by the way, what you're saying and how you've developed your 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 companies is very reminiscent of uh, the book Built to Last by Jim Collins. If, if you've ever heard of that, it's very interesting that you guys were saying everything yeah, he's saying. Hey, this is how you do it. So congrats on that. But how do you stay on top of because Garrett, you mentioned you saying you need to hire the right people that continually challenge you, right? But how else can we stay on those trends so that we can shift? We don't let go of the values. You say, hey, keep those in place of what we stand for. But we may not be necessarily doing the exact same thing 20 years from now. We'll still have the same values, but maybe not even the same product. So how how do we stay on top of those trends so we change and adapt? 
That's a really good question. You, you kind of answered it before. I, well, the uncomfortable people coming in and. Yeah, I mean, I like I, there's a person that works with me and has since the beginning who's just better at me. It's just all he does is just study, you know, what's going on in the culture. And what's next? What brands are, you know, he always knows the next new brand, not just in Iowa, anywhere. He's always in tune with, you know, which people are moving the, you know, the needle Um and it's just, it's so culture related, you know, and I don't mean like company culture. I mean like this, like the zeitgeist of, 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 the, of the things happening, you know, yeah. in this world, whether it be what Kanye West is doing and the people that are following him are into or, or otherwise, you know, I, I, I it's, that is a really hard question to answer. I don't know that I know it, you know, I, 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 I surround myself with people that are really good at what they do. I'm super self-aware I'm not personally a perfectionist, but I love when they are because they're really doing all these little things. And I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but I know I, that it's that, not just me. It's really all these people that are like super experts and just, I'm not stubborn. I am actually super stubborn, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but like I'm, I'm open to listen. I listen to people I feel like, and I, and I listen to my audience and I let it influence the things that we decide and I don't have, and neither does he have such a rigid view of who will be in a year or even six months, you know, it's ever changing. It's like, that's the only thing that's constant has changed. So if you try to grip onto that, I don't know, like you'll just get, I think you get stuck. So, and we see, you know, Tristan and I see that, uh, you know, there is this sort of delicate balance between staying because one of the things you guys both talked about, too, was the DNA of the firm, you know, the DNA of the company and making sure that you're true to that DNA. But then there's sort of a right mix or right time where you go, hey, yeah, I'm stubborn about the DNA, but then also open to uh, other people that have these ideas. And I guess it's just really having the the taste or vision to pick the to pick the trend spotters for you. Yeah, you definitely have to be, you, you won't be successful unless you're open to that. I was very open and would listen to probably way more comments by staff and other people than probably most companies wouldn't even consider. Like even somebody who doesn't work for me, they've said, said something, I go, well, or I was, you know, I was open and he's very open to that too. And I think you have to be that too, you know, you have to really. I also, you know, the one thing I'll say too is like, just in the terms of pressure, it's like, I don't think you have to be a genius to be super successful. Like I was a huge fan of Steve Jobs and I read all that stuff and you know what? He's just different. He just literally had a whole vision, super rigid, probably not the best person to work for, hated people that sucked, was a little bit mean, you know, and the, and created something that's the biggest company in the whole world. And he's would have been, you know, he's billionaires. Kids will be billionaires. Like, okay, if that's what you're going for, like, I don't really have the advice for you because then, you know, I hope you're a freaking genius. You know, I'm not a genius. Like, I have very, we have very successful careers, but you know, um, there's more than one way to do what we do. There's other people in this industry that have successful eyewear businesses. Yeah. You know, we didn't build Exotica, you know, but we are very happy and run very good companies that we love and love what we do. It's more intimate. We're more, you know, yeah. passion, intimacy, driven, yeah. love. It's a lot of that. It's just, it's, it's more different. intimate. 
Hey, hey, but uh, but your dad sold to Luxottica, right? No, so, he sold to Oakley, no, actually. Sold to Oakley. So, no. Oh, Oakley and Oakley sold to no, Luxottica. Okay, so, didn't know that. Got I didn't know. Got it. Okay. But I thought Oakley, so, Jim Gennard was a genius, too, who invented Jim Gennard is a genius. Genius. So, now, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, so, I'm just going to say this to you guys, and I appreciate how humble you are. And, and, and we are, we are speaking to a very broad audience. And I'm going to tell you that, that I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and you guys are geniuses and, and, you know, it's, it's absolutely true. And so the question really is one of the things I'm always trying to learn when I talk to, talk to folks like you is how do I, how do I absorb that? How do I, how do I create my own genius? Right. So you guys look at Oakley, you go, oh, Oakley's genius. So I'm sure you're right. I, I don't know. I, I know you guys, I'm telling you, you're genius, right? So how do we, how do Tristan and I absorb that genius? How do we create our own genius? And I think that, that, you know, I really think you've touched on it, uh, especially between the two of you, you know, where your dad just yeah. started in the trenches, you know, but always had that vision and was always, he wasn't driving toward the money. He was driving. I think Steve Jobs is the same, by the way, you know, not driving toward the money, but driving toward making that product that really spoke to his customers. You know, when he, when Steve Jobs came back, right. And they had all the, they, he closed down divisions of a company that were successful. I mean, certainly he closed in a lot of divisions that were unsuccessful, but when you go through it and he went from whatever it was, you know, 40 products down to six products, you know, he was closing down successful lines of his business. And, and I wouldn't have a vision to come in and do that. Right. So, so there's genius in that and it's sticking to your DNA, coming at it with a passion, focus on your audience, not yourself, not your product. And how am I going to make this thing perfect and make a big difference in people's lives. I mean, that's the, that's the genius that I saw from you guys today. Thank you. There's a lot. There's a lot there, guys. There's, I took a lot of notes and, and look, we get to interview some amazing people. We get to read um, great books and you pretty much outlined a lot of the same things that other successful people have done in different parts. And it's so cool to have both of you together, by the way, thank you again for that. That, that is pretty special. I love to see the, I love to see the, you know, of course I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, your dad's age or more your dad's age. So my dad's passed away, but I I love to see the, the, uh, you know, camaraderie or the, you know, the, the, the pride, really both of you, not just, not just dad looking at son with pride, but also Garrett, you looking at your dad and go, yeah, okay. That this, yeah, this is cool. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. Many times I'm like, guys are doing that. You come out of a pandemic and you're like, yeah. So. Right. Now all I got to do is, you know, I think we'll, uh, Garrett, why don't you tell us uh, your website? I'm sure these guys will get it for the show notes, but tell us yep. your website or whatever. And then, you know, before, yeah. before the thing goes live, you know, I got to get in there and get that, get that. Uh, I got to buy that you pair of uh, track, track pants before you hit the hundred track pants. I like that. We, um, and my website's garrettlight.com. Our last name is spelled L E I G H T. So um, garrettlight.com. And then also we have a collaboration together called Mr. Light. So that's mrlight.com. Um, and nice. same for all the social media stuff at Garrett Light. Um, and that's it. Love it. Nice. Nice. I, I'm following you now on Instagram. I just got you on there and I just added Mr. Light as well. Thank I you. like that, man. What's your... What's your favorite pair of glasses right now, guys? What do you What are you liking? Uh, that you make? Is what I've been wearing with these medium tint lenses. It's something from our fall collection. It's a little bit thicker. Um, yeah, we we make most of our success off really thin acetate frames. That's kind of like 
what we're known for, but there's a bit of a trend to thick. So I'm like feeling these kind of thicker. Do I get to come in and get I a stay fitting with the by Garrett Light? Yeah, he wore the. He was I usually wear Mr. Light the Getty one, which yeah. is sim. Yeah, just a just a simple, really beautifully made frame. Really, I always get a lot of comments on it. But I do wear some other ones. I wear. I mix them up. Same. Nice, nice guys. Well, thank you again, Paul. Thanks for co-hosting this with thank me. You. Thank you guys. Uh, we appreciate you guys. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.